Let me read for you beginning at verse 39 of chapter 10 through verse 3. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. You have a very simple outline on the back that I intend to follow, if that is helpful. First, by way of introduction, just understand the relationship of the last verse of chapter 10 with the first verse of chapter, first verses of chapter 12. Um, chapter 11 is, is stuck in here as a series of examples, of stories. These are exemplars of the truths that he's just spoken about. He could well have said this, we're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We're of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Therefore, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. I mean, that would just fit in with all the rest of Hebrews. It still fits. Just understand that that, that sentence, which needn't have been interrupted, is wisely interrupted by this master preacher with a series of many, many examples to prove the point that the just live by faith. That faith believes the promises of God and then doesn't just sit there or lie there, it actually works. If not, it's not saving faith. Secondly, by way of introduction, you should know that verse one is the explanation for the rest of this chapter. It's one of the principles. It's a definition in a vague way, uh, maybe, maybe less of a definition than you think, um, but it, it explains what the rest of the chapter is about. What it says is, is the, the moral of the story for each of these people. And then note, if you will, thirdly and finally, by way of introduction, that faith and hope are once again very, very closely identified. Don't, you know, you know that this is the chapter of the heroes of faith, right? I mean, that's, that's how it's been trumpeted for, for centuries. That's true. You could absolutely, with the same accuracy say these are a series of stories about the heroes of hope because as we've been seeing in the immediate previous chapters faith and hope in Hebrews are almost the same thing I mean faith is is particularly oriented in Hebrews toward believing the promises of God in the future now for the Old Testament that was the coming of Christ for us that's the next coming of Christ and the things with it 
But that's what our hope is. So he can say in one place, uh, hold on to the confession of your faith. In another place, he can say, hold on to the confession of your hope. I'm not saying they're identical, but they're very close. Their meaning is very close. And here they are again in this verse. Faith is the something, the assurance. We need to talk about that word, all right? Of things hoped for. Again, clearly there's a tight connection. All right, so let's move on to our first point of definitions. Now, those of you who have heard me teach for any length of time know that I often start with definitions, but it's the bulk of this sermon. And it needs to be because this verse, while in one sense is a simple verse, it's surprisingly deep. Um, it's, it's really not simple. And most people, I think, take the verse in a way that's not intended. I think they take it in a way that's scriptural. I think there are other places that teach what they think this verse teaches, but this teaches us actually something else, all right? And, and that's my hope that you will see that today. So I want to start with definitions because the reason why um, this verse means what it means is because, of course, of the specific words that he's used. So let's quickly move through a number of the words in this short verse. The first is faith. Now for those of you who have been in my catechism class, most recently studying saving faith, you know that in the Bible, there are more than one kind of faith. Fundamentally, there are only two kinds, saving faith and non-saving faith. But many, many times in the Bible, there is the mention of a belief or a faith or a trust that is not unto salvation. We could give a number of examples as we did in that class. Uh, Simon the magician, uh, some of the people who heard the word gladly in the parable of the soils and they had a certain kind of faith, even joyful faith, but it didn't produce eternal life. It's not saving faith. Historically, the church has talked about a, a general kind of faith a historical faith, that's part of saving faith. That's that a per when a person says, well, I understand you're saying certain things about Christ and that, and that God is claiming certain truths and I know what those truths are and I, I believe them. That's part of saving faith. It isn't saving faith, it's not enough to be saving faith, but it's a lot of it, right? So this isn't here, the faith here is not a general faith, it's not faith in faith, it's not um, temporary faith, it's not the faith of Judas and Simon and some others, it's actually saving faith. Now why do we know that? Well we know that because that's the faith of the immediately previous verses, including verse, right? We are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith, this faith, this saving faith, this is a faith that ends in salvation, as we sang in one of our hymns today. So this is saving faith. And like all saving faith, that means that it is a living faith. It's not an intellectual faith only. It is that. There are things in your head, you believe it, that's right, you must. But it's not only that. It's not historical faith. It's not mental faith alone. It's not bare faith, as some people say. It's a faith that lives. It's a faith that works. And we see that 
all throughout the chapter, right? It wasn't, well, Abel believed and did nothing. No, he believed and sacrificed. Abraham believed and, oh, he just sat at home. No, Abraham believed and went on a journey. Noah believed. And so he thought the plans that God gave him for that huge boat, they were pretty cool, but he didn't actually build it. No, no. Saving faith is a living faith. It's a faith that works. It's a faith that can be seen. Not perfectly, right? But really, truly. So faith here is saving faith. It's an active, living, working faith. To go back to the previous section, the just shall live by faith. Okay? Second word is, oh, pastor, seriously? We're going to talk about is? This kind of reminds me of, yeah, President Clinton. Well, it all depends what is means, he said under oath. And all of us laughed. Because at least what it appeared to be was simply an evasion. But words do have different meanings in different contexts, don't they? I mean, technically he was correct and he was, he was using a kind of a technicality to escape the force of what he was being asked because he didn't want to answer that question. Is, is a word that is almost never found in Hebrews. If you were to look at the Greek, you wouldn't find it in very many places. And that's because typically in higher literary styled Greek, like this book is written in, I mean, it's super carefully planned. It's, uh, it's incredible. You'd, you'd almost think God's hand was behind it. It's so, so well done. Um, the is is almost always left out. Now, it's obvious where it goes, and so uh, is is found in our English translation in lots of places. But this is one of the few places in the book where the word is is actually in the Greek. And not only that, for those of you who know a little bit about Greek, you know that the words at the beginning of the sentence are put there for importance, for emphasis. And esteemed is at the beginning of this sentence, not the very beginning, but toward the beginning of the sentence. So it's, it, it, it should make the Greek reader go, uh, uh, okay, there's something going on here. This is no ordinary is. And that's exactly right. This is no ordinary is. Instead of just being a statement of existence, is, he is, she is, it is, it's functioning in a way that means, that, that means something more like represents or sees or consists. One man even translates it celebrates. Now you might say, Pastor, how in the world do you get celebrates out of is? Well, I think as you listen to the sermon and, and hear some of the other words, you'll go, oh, that's... That's, that's not only reasonable, that, that's actually in other places in the Bible. Yes, I do think we will find that. All right, we'll look at those places. But here it's, it means that faith makes, faith shows, faith sees. 
And this will become clearer as we look, I think, at the next word. Faith is, if you have the ESV, it says faith is the assurance. Faith is the assurance. Now, if any of you have a King James or a New King James or a number of other translations, it will say the word substance. This is one of the famous verses of uh, the, the King James translation, and people would readily recognize faith is the substance of things hoped for. You know, when, when we have different uh, Bible translations in English, and someone would read a verse, and then someone over here would read the same verse, generally, when it comes to the nouns, we would go, oh, yeah, that's, that's just a different word for the same thing. Those are synonyms. Right? And it's very clear that, that that translation is saying the same thing as that translation. Okay. But I, I don't think of assurance and substance as being synonyms. And in fact, they're not. <laughs> they're, they're really not. So if you were to go to um, a Bible gateway and pull up like the 50 English translations that they have, of this verse and you'd look at it all, you'd find a lot of them say substance or, or ground or, or, or something like that, a synonym of that. And, and the rest of them say something like assurance or confidence. And again, substance, stuff, assurance, it doesn't seem like, doesn't seem like those words mean the same thing. Well, which is it or what's the explanation? Well, I believe the explanation can be shown to you from the book of Hebrews itself. And I really believe the best translation of this word, it ought to be translated into English, substance. So hooray for you King James users. Yeah, it, that really is clearly, frankly, <laughs> the meaning of the word. Um, I, I rarely mention Greek words in a sermon. I don't think that serves any purpose except to draw attention to uh, the bad pronunciation of Greek words. But I'm going to mention it here because for some of you, this word will be meaningful. It's hypostasis. Now, if you have studied the doctrine of the Trinity or the doctrine of Christ, you will recognize that word. It means substance, nature, essence, being. God is one in hypostasis. Christ's divine nature is his hypostasis, right? It's a very important word in the Bible and in, early, in, in the early church, in the doctrines of Trinity, etc. So what does the word mean in Hebrews? Well, it's used three times. Let's go look at the first one. It's Hebrews chapter one. And the third verse. You remember this, I trust. Speaking of the Son of God, Right, Jesus Christ, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, his hypostasis. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, what does it mean here? Well, assurance makes no sense at all, does it? I mean, it clearly means substance. Christ's divine nature is the same as God's. He is God. This is how we know he's God in part. The Son of God shares the same nature. 
he doesn't share the same assurance as God the Father. This is who he is. This is his being. The other use, besides our own verse here, is chapter 3, verse 14, where it's a bit more uh, difficult, perhaps, to know. But again, I think with a little thought, we'll see that the the word would be better translated, uh, substance. I'm going to back up to verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. That's who we're talking about, the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original substance firm to the end. To translate it, this is hypostasis again. To translate it confidence is to take the word firm and just repeat it. You don't stay saved. You don't avoid hardening by the deceitfulness of sin by holding on to your subjective confidence. You all know that doesn't work. Any of you who have had any wrestlings whatsoever with, am I a real Christian or not? How, how am I supposed to think about this? This is true, but this seems true. And I mean, when you wrestle with assurance, to look at your assurance does you no good unless your goal is to end up in the pit of despair. Right? No, what you hold on to against the deceitfulness of sin is your original substance your belief in the living God. This this faith, this content of faith, that's what you must hold on to. You must hold on to what God says about his son firmly. And if you are, you'll be saved in the end. So again, I think even here, where there's clearly beginning to be some subjective part of the meaning of this word, foundationally, it's still the objective meaning that this thing outside of yourself, this substance, this thing, in this case, that you have to believe. So when we come to chapter 11, verse 1, well, assurance fits very naturally, I think, in the way most of us think about faith. Um, Faith is, in part, not in whole, but in part, assurance. I mean, if you really believe something, maybe you don't have perfect assurance, but you have some confidence or, it's, or you really don't believe it. You don't say, well, I believe that. Of course, I have absolutely no assurance whatsoever that it's correct. Well, well then you don't believe. I mean, so whilst assurance isn't fully faith, I do think there is a sense in which it is of the essence of faith. Now, there's been a long argument about that in the history of Protestantism, but I think clearly, again, if faith in part is assent to knowledge, well, then there has to be some some bit of assurance or it's not real belief. But it's not so much assurance that if you ever doubt, oh, oh, you didn't really have faith. Well, no, real Christians doubt all the time. This side of heaven, our faith isn't perfect. 
So it's not perfect assurance. So again, it's easy to make this fit with the way we think, but, but the word here isn't the word for assurance or confidence that is used in other places in Hebrews. This is hypostasis. This is the ground, the substance, the, the being. So it says, it's saying this, faith sees the substance of things hoped for. There are things in the future God has promised. What faith does is sees them as real, as substantive. Not as ephemeral, not as maybe this or that, but as real, as substantive, as a living reality, as the word is sometimes translated. This view is, I would say, confirmed a little bit later in this chapter. Uh, Look at verse 13 with me. After rehearsing a number of these men and women of faith, he he kind of does a, a summary before the end of the chapter. And here's what he says in verse 13. See if this sounds familiar. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. But having seen them, and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. You see, what faith does is sees things far away, sees promised things, and it doesn't just see them, it greets them. You could almost say faith, what? Celebrates substantive things that God has promised. That's what faith does. It doesn't just go, oh, that's a nice hope. Sure hope it, sure hope that comes to pass. No, faith looks out, sees it, believes it, takes hold of it, brings it back here, brings it from the future into the now and it inhabits the heart. And so faith really does believe. Faith really does trust. And this thing isn't made up. It's a reality. Oh, I don't mean you know, Jesus has already come and and we're seeing it now. No, but he's going to come. And what faith says is, I believe that and it's so real that it actually affects the way I live. That's what faith does. It makes future promises of God substantive, weighty, that they matter so that you actually order your life according to those future things that in one sense don't exist in another sense, absolutely exist in your heart, mind, and soul. And they exist so strongly. You are convinced so certainly that that in faith, you act, you live according to them. So that's why this word assurance, I would really urge you to think about as substance or living reality or expression of, something like that. Um, what about the word conviction? Now, clearly, it says faith presents to our eyes. Faith sees, faith... And then there are two parallel phrases. Assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen. So, conviction is in parallel or support or adding to um, 
this word assurance or substance. This too should be taken in an objective, not a subjective sense. It simply means, it's the word for proof. In other words, he's saying faith demonstrates to the mind, to the heart, to the believer, the existence of reality that can't be perceived by the senses. Faith convinces the mind. It doesn't depend on science or reason. It goes beyond both of them. It's not contrary to those things, but it believes in the existence of things that they are real because God said they were real. And the unchangeable, certain promises of God are taken by faith as proof, as absolutely true of the existence of those things. No, nope, can't do a scientific test and, and prove it, see it, touch it, weigh it. Nope. It was like that foolish Russian cosmonaut who when in his little bubble machine flying around the earth had the audacity to say, I, I've been out here and looked around and I don't see any God. Well, of course you didn't. He's invisible. He's above and beyond science. Doesn't mean he's not real. But if you don't have faith, you won't see him. You won't recognize his presence. <laughs> so let me sum up this first section of definitions. And I'm going to say really the same thing two, three, four ways to help it sink in. Maybe one of them will work better than another for you. Faith, these verses teach, this verse teaches, faith sees the actual reality of things hoped for. Faith proves the things not seen. Or we could just say it this way, the just shall live by faith. Or this way, faith gives substance to our hopes. It makes the sure but future promises of God so real and so present with us that men of faith live their lives in accordance with it. You see, saving faith is more than just confident or assured about these things. It actually turns the promises of God that are distant into present reality. And so strong is this ground that we regulate our lives by it. The just shall live by faith. Or finally, and here's our word, faith celebrates now the reality of future blessings that make up the content of our hope. I like that one especially. Faith celebrates the reality of future blessings 
that are the content of our hope. Now let's move on to the objects of, uh, of this faith. Faith works to give reality to these two parallel things that are mentioned in the verse. Things hoped for, things not seen. So in other words, things in the future, things that are promised by God, and so they're guaranteed to be real at, at some future time. In other words, they'll have actual existence, but in that sense, they don't exist yet. They're still future. We're not talking about faith seeing uh, invisible spiritual creation like angels. We're speaking of tangible realities, stuff, substance, that just isn't in existence yet. Events, people, actions that aren't in time and space yet. These are hoped for things that are future things. And because they're future, they're not seen now, at least not with the physical eye. Again, back at verse 13, these are the things promised. They're still out there. They're still forward and future. So in other words, these things that he's talking about, these hoped for things, these things not seen, these are things found in the promises of God. The promises of God. Now, the promises of God have come to men in different ways uh, in, in history. Uh, some of the men that we will talk about here um, had it by a, a voice from God. I mean, God spoke directly to them. Some through prophets. Some through dreams, perhaps. There are many ways God has done it. Today, the way we know the promises of God that are for us are through inscripturated revelation. They're through the Bible. That's where we have these promises of God for the future. But this is not a verse, and so this is not a verse, that is, that is doing what so many word of faith uh, false teachers teach. If you can imagine it, if you can claim it, if you have enough faith, it will become real. And if you send me money, it'll help. No, this is not anything and everything that enters your brain. Those are not the things hoped for, the things not seen. The things hoped for and not seen are the promises of God. And it includes any and every one of those and nothing else and nothing more. That doesn't mean other things that you hope for might not come true. It means that faith doesn't make those things real. Faith makes real the things that are real in the plan and purposes of God. They're just future. I know that this can't mean that anything that you claim, anything that you wish for with enough faith, you know, you too can become gods, some of them even say, right? This is one of the ways you're, you're like God and you become God. You, you actually just, you set your mind on something and you claim it, you name it, and with enough faith, it pops into existence. Well, I know that can't be true, 
Two reasons. One, the Bible doesn't teach that anywhere else. This verse doesn't teach that. And secondly, I have wished and hoped and named and claimed that all those teachers would go away and they're still here. Okay? So I know this can't work because they still spout off this nonsense. No, our faith rightly rests only in what God has actually promised. All saving faith must be subservient to the word of God. Otherwise, it's falsely placed. The only realities faith can give a kind of existence to are those that are sure and certain from the word of God. Well, let's turn to two uses now and we'll be done. First, This doctrine explains how Old Testament saints had Christ. How did the Old Testament saint have Christ? By faith. By faith. We're going to hear it over and over again in this chapter, Lord willing. By faith. He was present and real with them by faith. As William Perkins, the the famous Puritan preacher of the late 1500s and one who's often called the English Calvin because their preaching styles were very alike. Um, He said this, they were true partakers of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Wait wait, wait a minute, Pastor. Our Christology, we, we got this a little better than William did. I mean... Jesus didn't, I mean, the Son of God didn't have flesh and blood until way after, like Abraham and everybody else. How could they have had the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ? By faith, by this verse. Because faith has the ability to hear the promises of God. There's a coming Messiah. He will open a fountain where people can come and wash their hands in their blood. They can be made pure. His, his righteousness will become their righteousness. They have those promises. They had those promises in the Old Testament. They, oh, from our perspective, they're past. They've already happened. But for them, they were future. They were the promises of God. And the saving faith, saving faith that they had, looked forward, looked to Christ, and they were able to bring the, the Christ the Messiah, the promised one, the body and blood, his work and person in a kind of reality in their mind and soul. That's what faith does. Oh, I don't mean that he, the son of God, actually in, in, in Abraham's time for just a few seconds, you know, took on human flesh. And, no, 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 this is, this is a soulish, this is a, a heart-believing kind of existence but it was so real that they not only believed in him, they ordered their lives according to that. They were justified and they lived by faith. So Christ in a sense had a kind of real existence in their souls. In a certain sense, he was present with them. Think of John 8, 56. What does Jesus say? Abraham saw me and rejoiced. 
You know what that sounds like? That sounds like Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith celebrated. That's exactly what Jesus is describing about Abraham in John 8. Abraham saw my day, saw me, and rejoiced. Abraham's faith celebrated. He took the promise of God for a future Savior and by his faith saw him and rejoiced over him. How real was Jesus to Abraham? He was more real than most of the people who saw the physical body of Jesus, who could touch him, who ate with him, who heard his words, who crucified him, but didn't believe him. That's right. Amen. They didn't have saving faith. You see, saving faith has a power that mere scientific sight can never produce. Abraham saw me and rejoiced. You see, Christ was physically absent from Abraham, but very present. With the, most of the Pharisees, Christ was physically present and spiritually very far away, spiritually absent, right? This is about saving faith not about physical proximity. Or think of 1 Corinthians 10, and we just read this last Lord's Day. What did Israel do? They ate and drank Christ the rock. Again, faith makes things that are absent from a believer to be present with that believer. Well, our second use and we've already hinted at this, and this will lead us to the supper. This is also how New Testament saints benefit from the Lord's Supper, by faith. You only benefit at this table if you come by faith. Because here, by faith, Christ is present. We disagree with that doctrine that teaches that no benefit comes to us unless this is the physical body and blood of Jesus. We don't need his physical blood, his physical flesh. We need his spiritual presence by faith. His body is in heaven. His body is not here. But he, oh, make no mistake about it, he is here. He is here by faith. He is here by the Holy Spirit. He is not absent to any believer who comes to this table in faith. Doesn't Paul condemn the one who comes to eat and drink but doesn't discern the body of Christ? He's saying Christ is here. You need to see that. You see it by faith. So by faith, you are able to reach, as it were, the Christ in heaven right here at this table. Because faith celebrates the substance of God's promises. Let's pray.